Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 426. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a show, have we not? I'll tell you what's coming in. First up is the main fiction, and it is A Dying Fall by Christopher Priest, no less. Yes, man, wow, how cool is that? Then my interview this week is with Carly Veloci, and we're talking about all Nazis in space. Yes, why do we use Nazis as the bad horde you know, in kind of the science fiction, the fantasy and the tropes, zombies. Why is it always Nazis? That's all coming in today's show, so I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Now, first up, just a little reminder, just a little nudge, that Starship Sova is eligible for a Hugo Award in Best Fan Cast category. Apparently, voting closes on the 31st of March, so, you know, if you think, if they think the Owl Girls deserves it, you know what I mean? Let uh, Starship Sofa be back in the running. If we do, we do. If we don't, hey, don't worry about it. But that would be nice. So, the main fiction, and like I say, it's by Christopher Priest. And oh, for years, man, for years, I've wanted to get a Christopher Priest story on. And, and if you pop over to my YouTube channel, you'll see there that I did a, one of the kind of videos on his book, In An Inverted World. And that book just blew me away. Do you know what I mean? It was wrote in, oh, I think, 1974, and I just kind of picked it up oh, about six months ago or something like that, and just what a story. The concepts, you know, the, the ideas, the ideas, man, wow, it, this is just like science fiction at its utmost best, do you know what I mean? And like I say, I've known Christopher Priest being out there in the kind of firmaments, you know what I mean, for a long time, and it's, it's honestly, it's an honour to have you know, a story by this writer, just one of the UK, you know, grandiose writers there. And to come on Starships over, that's just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? A big heads up the well to Jeremy for going in there, a little kind of rabid dog. Go on, Jeremy. Thank you so much. I'll give you a little heads up about this story and about Christopher Priest. This story was originally published in Asimov's in December 2006. Christopher Priest was born in Cheshire, England. He began writing soon after leaving school and has been a full-time freelance writer since 1968. He has published 13 novels, four short story collections and a number of other books, including critical works, biographies, novelizations, and children's non-fiction. His novel, The Separation, won the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the British Science Fiction Fantasy Award. In 1996, Priest won the James Tate Black Memorial Award for his novel The Prestige. He's been nominated four times for the Hugo Award and has won several awards, including the Kurd Laswitz Award, which was Germany, 
the Eurocon Award for Yugoslavia, the Dipmore Award for Australia, and Le Grand Prix de l'Imaginaire from France. In 2001, he was awarded the Prix Utopia, which is France for Lifetime Achievement Award, and well-deserved as well. He's written for drama for the radio of BBC4 and television, Thames TV and HTV. In 2006, The Prestige was made into a major motion picture by Newmarket Films and directed by Christopher Nolan. The Prestige went straight to number one in the US box office. It received two Academy Award nominations and i never seen it coming at all. That was, you know what I mean? What a great film, great story, but what a great film as well and just... It got me straight away, do you know what I mean? I was hooked in that film, and i never seen the ending coming one bit, you know what I mean? Chris Priest's most recent novel, The Gradual, will be published in Galance in 2016 and in the USA by Titan Books. He is vice president of the HG Wells Society. In 2007, an exhibition of installation art based on his novel, The Affirmation, was mounted in London. As a journalist, he has written features and reviews for The Times, The Guardian, The Independent, The New Statesman, The Scotsman and many different magazines. And like I say, it is an honour to get this guy on. Do you know what I mean? Kind of just one of the kind of legends out there in science fiction terms. And honestly, any book you want to pick up, just pick it up. Do you know what I mean? But for me, the, the one I kind of just fell in love with, man, was that inverted world. Do you know what I mean? What a story. Do you know what I mean? And when you, when, you, when you read the back of it, you think, eh, you know, and it's basically a world on a, is, which is a, a train. Do you know what I mean? That, the world is the train, and they, these people live on this train, which is the world. That's all I'm going to say, because it's like, man, just stop what you're doing there now. Click on a link. I'll put a link on for his, that for that book for the kind of Amazon for like download. You know, you Kindle. Just get it. Just start reading it. A cracking novel, Jimmy. A cracking novel. And this is a cracking narration. See, I'm excited, man. I'm sweating here because I'm just so excited. Narrated by Michael Narimore. Oh, man, Michael Narimore, who you know has got the voice. Do you know what I mean? What a what a guy. He came over and asked where you know what I mean, and he says like he works for Audible and. Everything and we've never let up. Do you know what I mean? Kind of badger him. So, Michael, what can I say? A big thank you. Michael Narimore has worked in the audiobook industry since 2001. <laughs> I actually wouldn't say that, Michael. Just giving you age away there, lad. When fresh out of college, he was hired as a recording engineer for publisher Brilliance Audio, now Brilliance Publishing, a subsidiary of Amazon.com. Over time, he has Transition to director, all the while absorbing techniques and nuances from the best actors in the business. To date, Michael has narrated well over 100 titles under his own and assumed names. Authors range from Nora Roberts, Lisa Garner, Edward Klein and Clive Barker, no less. Wesley Chu, science fiction, Ramiz Nam as well and Mark E. Cooper. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present A Dying Fall by Christopher Priest Narrated by Michael Naramore You are about to die. What will be the last thought to flash through your mind? When his own final moment came to him, Marcus Birch realized at once what was happening. There was no doubt about it. Death struck him unavoidably, an appalling accident with an inevitable outcome. 
There was no time for fear or regrets or avoiding action or last-minute farewells. He simply experienced a feeling of disbelief and terror and a total involvement with the accident. You cannot prepare for death. That was the first thing Birch learned. It strikes without warning, a double blow, death and its accompaniment. Death was to be expected, but it did not come alone. It brought with it one great and last illuminating thought, a vision of life, a summation and consummation. Birch had read of people who survived near-death experiences, speaking of the way their whole lives had seemed to run before them. That was not what he experienced on the day of his death, that last hour, that final minute, that culminating split second. But a last thought did burst upon him. His vision consisted of a stretch of straight road glimpsed through the windshield of a car, the land bright with sunlight, traffic roaring along beside him and in front of him. Although there were almost no identifying marks, Birch knew at once that he was in Belgium driving at speed along a modern highway, and the mystery of the memory flooded into him. Why should this be the last thought of his lifetime? Why Belgium? When was this? Why should Birch, an Englishman living in London, think of Belgium? How was he so sure? It was urgent that he understood. Time slowed. Time halted. The split second expanded like a bloom flowering in the sunlight. The memory flashed in, came to rest, stayed there at the forefront of his mind and communicated the knowledge, this is it, this is the end, this is what you will take to your grave, the climactic moment of your life. In that instant of frozen introspection, he was drawn irrevocably to the image that had appeared in his mind. He understood it realized that it was like a single frame of film taken from a whole story. But the meaning of the story was a mystery. Birch hardly knew Belgium, had visited the country only once. Why should his life close with thoughts of a place he barely knew? We are none of us ready to die, but even so we spend our lives knowing that the moment of dreaded departure will come. Most of the time we try not to think about it. We shrink from contemplating death, what it will mean. Death is the great blackness, and the only experience you take into death is the moment of dying. Of course, death comes to us all in the end, the huge inescapable fact. Shakespeare died, Beethoven died, Einstein died, Rembrandt died, Churchill died. Their immortal abilities, their lasting influence on the world, were no use to them as a way of warding off the moment of passing. Death does not discriminate with its horrors. But did these great men think mysteriously of another country as they breathed their last? Did Churchill dream inexplicably of Canada as he died, as Marcus Birch dreamt of Belgium as he died? Did Shakespeare, without warning, suddenly think of Italy? Birch was not a great man, and he harbored no illusions that he might be. However, he too would from time to time wonder more prosaically about what his fate was going to be. It seemed likely that some kinds of death were more likely or predictable than others. A car accident, a heart attack, pneumonia, old age. 
All these were familiar ways of dying, ones that could strike Birch as they struck most other people. Other fates were more personal, the ones that everyone in a sense designs for himself. We all make choices and avoid others. Birch was no different. He discounted many possibilities. He felt it unlikely, for instance, that he would die in the frozen catastrophe of an avalanche, or under the lava flow from a volcano, or in a hail of machine gun bullets in a gangland shooting, or from the bite of a rabid animal, or in the clutching hands of a strangler, or in many other exotic or unusual ends. His life as a middle-aged Londoner did not expose him to those dangers. But respiratory illness, now that was a possibility. Birch had suffered from bronchitis when he was a child. He took up smoking when he was a teenager, and he had smoked for years before finally quitting. So what kind of mortal ending would that lead him to? He imagined himself dying in his own bed, struggling for breath, his heart laboring, his thoughts becoming vague while anxious relatives surrounded him. In this fanciful end, his pallid hands would lie on the starched sheets while his frail head would be propped on linen pillows. He would be old, of course, exceedingly old, so old that life would no longer matter to him. If images of Belgium loomed in the last moment, he would barely notice. Other illnesses would be similar. Hospital beds, sick beds, visitors, the physical degradations of terminal disease. All of these he could imagine and even expect. None of them seemed likely to include a motorway in Belgium. Perhaps instead he would choke on food. He always talked too much when he was eating, and his wife said he ate too fast anyway. He imagined a half-chewed morsel of steak lodging in his windpipe, a piece of pasta, a lump of cheese, a crust of bread. Choking, he would fall to the floor, struggle pitifully for a while, then expire. Or drink. How much alcohol had he drunk in his life? And how much more was there to come, because he had no intention of giving it up? He wondered about cirrhosis, pancreatitis, dementia, kidney disease, heart failure. He disliked the prospect of all of them, although there was always the saving thought, or perhaps it was a delusion, that terminal agonies might be cushioned by a bottle or two in the last hour. Transport accidents. He drove his car a lot. He was often on trains. He flew three or four times a year. Anything was possible. A traffic accident on a motorway? And his own particular danger of choice? Birch had taken up free-fall parachuting when he was twenty and still single. For two decades afterwards, he gave up all his spare time to this expensive hobby. Every spring, summer, and fall, he spent most weekends taking headlong leaps from high-flying aircraft, plummeting towards the map-like ground so far below. It was an exhilarating pastime, addictive, endlessly exciting and rewarding. Dangerous, too. He often heard of accidents happening to other parachutists, a fact that gave an undoubted extra thrill to every jump. Although there was little risk of harm so long as you fell freely through the sky, there always came the moment when it was necessary to tug on the ripcord and trust to the saving billow of the parachute, cracking open in the air above you, slowing your mad dive, lowering you in a more controlled way towards the ground. Perhaps once he might have wondered if that strenuous, thrilling hobby might signal the personal fate awaiting him. But 
In the end, there was no danger. By the time Birch reached the age of 40, his children were in secondary school and his wife had not been in full-time employment since before they were born. Marcus Birch was the sole breadwinner, and there was no family money to spare. Freefall parachuting was a luxury he could no longer afford, and since his mid-thirties, he had visited the airfield less and less often. In the end, parachuting went out of his life as easily as it had arrived. It might once have been a risk to him, but it was no more. Not one of these deaths was to happen to him. It appeared to involve Belgium. So Marcus Birch lived his ordinary life, whose outer appearance was no different from that of any other man until he was forty-five. He was early middle-aged, his hair was starting to go gray, but only a few strands, and his stomach was a little plumper than he would have liked, but nothing that could not be swiftly slimmed down by sensible eating and exercise. His general health was good. His work and home life were stable and contented. He loved his wife. His children, now in their late teens, had settled down at their universities. He was free of worries. One evening in this unconcerned life, he was standing on the platform of a tube station, deep beneath the center of London. He was about to cross from one side of town to the other. He was keeping his distance from the pressing crowds by listening on his iPod to Clara Haskell, the Romanian-born concert pianist playing Mozart's Ninth Piano Concerto. It was by modern standards an old performance, before cassette tapes, before CDs, before downloads. Haskell had recorded the concerto in 1958, not long before her sudden death. In spite of its age, the transfer was perfect, and it was a sensitive, atmospheric rendition, a personal favorite of his. But Haskell's playing was not at the forefront of his mind. As he waited for the next train to pull in, he was thinking about the meeting he was heading for, unworried about the future. It was a warm evening. The meeting would be short. He would be seeing some friends for a drink afterwards, and the train was signaled to arrive within a minute. While he waited, he looked along the railway lines, staring down at the shallow cavity that had been created between the rails and beneath the sleepers. As in every underground station in London, this trench, an emergency measure to help protect anyone who fell or leapt from the platform, was filled with the mess of rubbish, plastic bottles and cardboard cartons and loose papers. The second movement of the concerto ended. Clara Haskell fingered the first notes of Mozart's finale, the rondo. The familiar refrain swelled in his earphones. He felt the customary rush of warm air belching out of the tunnel into the station as the train approached from the distant darkness. The litter between the rails moved with the wind. The great rumbling of the wheels grew louder. He glanced towards the opening of the tunnel, saw the front of the train rushing alongside the platform, heard the rising screech of brakes and wheels as the train slowed down to pick up the waiting passengers. Behind him, someone moved suddenly, pushing against his lower back and catching him off balance. He turned, trying to steady himself, but his foot slipped. He began to topple to the side. The motion had spun him around so that he was facing the oncoming train. He was tipping over as he fell, away from the platform, stiff with fear above the rails, angling down, unstoppably tumbling. He could see the train, five meters away, three meters away. 
Clara Haskell played on as if nothing had changed. Over the orchestra and piano, Birch could hear the screaming of the train. The driver was at the controls, one arm thrown up above his eyes, the other pressing frantically against something on the panel in front of him, trying to ward off the man he saw toppling before him, trying to stop the train in the impossibly short distance that remained. Then, in the final split second before the train struck him, Marcus Birch saw a vision of Belgium. He was in Belgium. He was on a divided highway, inside a car, driving at high speed. A sign went by, indicating Bruxelles and Liège, and Brussels and Like, and other places whose names he either did not recognize or did not have time to read. Everything had two names. The experience of the vision was a shock. Shockingly real, clear, actual, immediate. Brilliant hot sunshine, the roar of the traffic outside, the passing trees and the fleeting glimpses of fields and houses. Birch allowed the vision to continue, trying to understand what he was seeing or what he might be doing. He looked around at where he was sitting. Yes, he was in a car. It was his own car, a Renault, one he had owned many years before. He remembered that Renault well. He remembered buying it using it for three or four years, selling it when it was time for another. He stayed with the image, letting it flow seamlessly around him. He wondered how long this final remaining fragment of his life might last. Would it be possible to sit here forever, watching the Belgian highway unfurling before him, endlessly putting off the moment when he would have to let himself go back, back to be crushed by the train? Time appeared to be frozen, so the frozen time gave him long enough to think. This, he knew now, was based on a memory, a fleeting distant memory of a visit he had made a quarter of a century before. He was in his early twenties and was driving down to southern Germany, where he was planning to visit some friends. His route from Calais led him down the west side and through the south of Belgium, Bruxelles, Liège, Verviers, across the Ardennes. That thought made the image change in a flash of different light and scenery. The road still lay ahead, but now it was narrower and the traffic noise was less. Ahead, to his right and left, were tree-covered hills. The lush Ardennes landscape rolled away endlessly on either side. He saw a road sign to Spa and another to Malmedy. The border with Germany was not much farther ahead. The road signs were in French alone. The vision changed again, with another jolt of shifting perspective. Now he was on a country road, with tall trees planted along each side, farmland spreading away. A town lay ahead. He could see houses, a church spire, small businesses beside the road. Cars were moving slowly, as was his. He saw people riding bicycles. A sign said the place was called Saint-Vite. Instantly, he recognized and remembered the name. Instantly, the memory changed again. He was out of the car, standing on a grassy slope. He was in a forest clearing, with trees growing on all sides. He was not alone. He looked around at the scene. There were about a dozen other young men and women, standing in an orderly semicircle, watching him. A harness was tied around his chest, running up behind his shoulders, 
and with broad leather straps looped between his thighs to support his weight. He glanced upwards. A gantry built of dull gray tubular steel supported the pulleys for the harness. The two ropes were taut but not restraining him. There was a young, fierce-looking man standing beside him. His arms and legs braced aggressively. This is how to fall, he shouted at Birch. He was wearing gray camouflage pants and shirt, which fit him like well-cut military fatigues. He stepped away from Birch, half-turned, then fell suddenly to the ground. His body rolled easily and smoothly, like that of a trained athlete. Immediately, he was on his feet again, springing upright, standing in front of Birch, exactly as he had been before. It was like a loop of film, replaying. This is how to fall, he shouted. Make your arms and legs pliable. Let the momentum take you as you hit the ground. He turned away and fell swiftly to the ground, his body rolling easily on the rough turf. With the same lithe movement as before, he came springing upright and stood beside Birch. This is how to fall, he shouted again. Relax your muscles, but prepare for the impact. He turned away to demonstrate once more, dropping athletically to the ground, breaking his fall, spreading the impact, then leaping to his feet with an easy strength. That is how to fall, he shouted at Birch again. Now you try it. To Birch's amazement, the harness tightened around him, and he was swept two or three meters into the air. Dangling on the ropes, he swung to and fro, spinning slowly. Remembering. Remembering. This was a course in parachuting in which he had enrolled when he first became interested in free-falling. He had made it part of his trip to Germany all those years ago. He had interrupted his journey at Saint-Vite, to spend three days in a training camp in this forest clearing, situated in the hills outside the town. In the world of parachuting, the Saint-Vite course was considered the best. Every freefall parachutist he met told him to train there if he possibly could. He had come to Belgium to learn the technical skill of landing on the ground at the end of a parachute descent without breaking any bones. So he remembered. The gantry released him. He crashed to the ground. His supple body took the impact while the momentum rolled him across the grassy floor of the clearing. This is how to fall, the instructor shouted at him again as the memory looped. The harness raised him, spinning him in the air. He was released. His body fell rapidly to the earth. In a reflex, he loosened his body, raised his knees to take the first shock of impact, let his limbs relax. He clouted the ground, but rolled easily and painlessly across the uneven turf. This is how to fall! The instructor shouted at him again and again. Birch landed repeatedly on the hard ground, rolling easily with his limbs relaxed, never hurting himself. The memory went no further. He was hoisted into the air, he swung around, he plummeted to the ground, he landed and rolled, leapt again to his feet. He believed he could spend eternity in that rondo, replaying the memory with its subtle variations, the frozen image that came to him in the split second before he was killed. He was terrified of the alternative, the reality behind this false image, this hopeless, despairing glimpse of memory, clinging to life. So he swung and fell and landed and rolled, then swung again, fell again 
landed and rolled, putting off the moment of dying. Then he was back in grim reality, falling again, swinging again out from the edge of the railway platform beneath the streets of London. His body was stiff and defensive, braced against the imminent pain, toppling out over the electrified track in front of the rushing train, his arm raised uselessly to try to break the impact. The train, brakes screeching, hammered unstoppably towards him. Remembering, he relaxed his outstretched arm, loosened the muscles of his back, let his legs become pliable. The direction of his fall altered immediately. Instead of swinging out stiffly like a pole across the metal tracks, he dropped more directly downwards, vertically, a much quicker fall. He landed heavily against one of the rails, felt agonizing pain as his head crashed against it. One of the front wheels, locked solid in a spasm of emergency braking, was slewing towards him with white-hot sparks flying around it. He thumped down, a pliant body, rolling with the momentum into the emergency trench beneath the rails. The train roared over him, a hell of shattering noise and vibration. He was in total darkness his entire body paralyzed by pain. There, it ended for him. There in the clearing in the Belgian forest, it had also ended many years ago, but with a broken ankle and a sarcastic instructor, unsympathetically yelling at the next trainee to put on the harness. Marcus Birch lay on the uneven ground, both hands reaching down to grip the agony of his ankle his face and arms white and strained, trying to look as if it didn't matter in front of the other men and women under the harsh manner of the instructor. Someone eventually called for an ambulance, and in the hospital he was treated well and efficiently. He traveled home from Belgium by train a few days later, hobbling on crutches, full of regrets and the humiliated anger of having had to abandon the course before it properly started. The face of the instructor his expression hard and his eyes narrowed with impatience, haunted him for days. The plaster did not come off for several weeks, and that ankle was weaker than the other for the next two years. While his leg was mending, he was unable to return to the freefall parachuting club, and by the time he was walking normally again, he had lost all interest in the activity. He never went back. Birch huddled in the littered, filthy space between the rails as the train came to a final halt. Somewhere out there in the main part of the station, there was a racket of shouting voices, warnings, yelled instructions, people screaming, footsteps running away. Closer in, around him in the darkness beneath the train, was a deep silence. Even closer, pressed into his right ear, was the remaining earpiece. The iPod was still working. He was not dead, but later they said at the hospital that he came as close to it as anyone they had ever seen. Both his legs were broken, one of his arms. His left hand had been severed by the train's wheel. A hip was broken, also his pelvis. There were cuts, grazes, and bruises all over him. He was in pain so deep and extensive that he simply lacked the words to describe what he felt. In any event... He was sedated for many days and remembered almost nothing of his first period of slow recovery.
The iPod was still working, the one remaining earphone clinging on somehow. In the years ahead, he often played again the final movement of that Mozart concerto, the rondo. The familiar refrain, endlessly repeated, was a way of holding on to his moment of saved life, the postponement of the inevitable. He loved Clara Haskell's interpretation. Her delicate musician's touch, the sublimely fluid notes of the concerto, the reworked phrases, the repetitions, the subtle variations, her dying fall. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Christopher Priest. Christopher, what can I say, sir? Honestly, you've just made a very happy man here. Thank you so much. And Michael, man, man, them dulcet tones. Thank you so much. What an honour to get a Christopher Priest story on Starship Sova. Wow. Like I say, go over, read Inverted Worlds. You know what I mean? Take it on holiday. It just It's one of them books where you just get lost, man. And it keeps you guessing, man. I keep on harping on about it, but it does. It keeps you guessing because you you cannot work out how it's happening, how, what's, what, you know what I mean? He's always, Chris Priest is always like a couple of steps, a mile, in my case, ahead of us. Do you know what I mean? Kind of, and it just was, that's what kept you kind of reading because you're thinking, well, what, how's it, what's happening here, man? Because it's just like the bizarrest kind of idea, you know, world. And you think, oh, right, man. You know what I mean? Just fantastic. So, on to the interview, and it is with Carly Veloce. And Carly wrote an article over there on Motherboard, and it was basically <laughs> Nazis in space. What is this kind of trope? You know, why is it so heavily used in, you know, kind of in this genre of the kind of the fantastical? You know, what I mean, science fiction uses it all the time. Do you know what I mean we've just had the kind of the film a couple of years ago, Iron Sky? Do you know what I mean? Where they're kind of hiding on the, the dark side of the moon. And, you know, it's used in horror and everything. And what is this kind of fascination? And I was going to say, I was looking to get Carly on, on the line and have a chat with her. Carly, you wrote this great article. And like I say, it just, it made us smile when I was kind of reading it. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, oh, yes. And we, we do have this kind of love for some reason of putting like Nazis on the moon and kind of, you know, what's this fascination with the kind of Nazis and space and everything like that? I mean, when I, like when I went to like start writing the article, I was just as kind of lost. Cause I was like, you know, this is something I see a lot. I'm not a hundred percent sure why this is something we see a lot, especially like nowadays in the last, like, you know, five years or so, there've been a lot of movies that have taken, Nazis and put them in these weird like sci-fi fantasy uh, worlds and put them in these weird scenarios like like Nazi zombies is really popular now and you know Nazis on the moon and Nazis in space. Um, so I like put out a I put out this like request on like a like a science fiction um, like board for like experts on like science fiction and pop culture and so many people were really excited to talk to me about it. Because everyone had like these different views, and everyone was really interested in these I, this idea of alternate histories. Um, and you know, if you're gonna break it down to its basics, like what if the Nazis won World War II is a very easy and effective alternate history scenario um, because it was something that affected like 
the huge chunk of the Western and Eastern worlds. It was something that is still very kind of recent and fresh in people's minds. And the Nazis were terrifying in terms of just what kind of technology they created and, you know, what kinds of research they were doing, which is why, you know, when the war ended, all these countries were like rushing to snatch up all these Nazi scientists. Um, And I can only really speak from an American point of view, um, but you know, the fact that, you know, we got the guy that invented the V2 rocket essentially was huge for us. Um, so I think, like, the fact that Nazis and, you know, the, the, in that era were so scientifically advanced, at least compared to the rest of us, that it makes for a really easy, like, well, what if they did invent technology that allowed them to live in space? Because, I mean, they were ahead of all of us in terms of rocket technology, why wouldn't they, you know, have kept going? So it kind of makes sense in a weird, like, well, if we had let the Nazis keep going, what would have happened kind of thing. So can you give us, can you give us like an early example, you know, of, you know, just for people listening, like of the kind of like a, a theme or a story where we've got Nazis on the moon? Well, the first one that like I came across and that, you know, everyone I kind of talked to um, cited was this like young adult uh, sort of novel called Rocket Ship Galileo, which is basically this like pulp um, young adult sci-fi book about like, you know, scientist kids and they get to the moon and they find Nazis have been living on the moon. And it's very, very like kind of black and white. Uh, morality storytelling and very much like the Nazis are evil and the not- kids are good. And it's very like kind of basic in terms of its storytelling, but it was, it was definitely one of the earliest examples of kind of like that Nazis on the moon trope. It's very much like it, it, it touches upon these story details that you see a lot like, Oh, the Nazis were living on the dark side of the moon. And, you know, for some reason that's where the Nazis live. Um, <laughs> it's got to be, hasn't it? It's got to be on the dark side of the moon, um, even though that's not something that really exists. Um, so, and that's like the earliest one that I could see. But like, it's something that's popped up a lot in like you know, uh, Man in the High Castle is another like really famous example. Even though it's not exactly Nazis on the moon, it's you know, it's not it's an alternate history where you know the Nazis won World War Two and the Nazis and the Japanese basically kind of. Um, rule America from like the East and the West and they've colonized Mars and Venus in the story. So they're very technologically advanced um, and way ahead of like us in terms of that, um, especially because like, the, the book itself takes place in, I think like the 1960s. So it's see, so considering, you know, how, you know, how obsessed people were with, you know, finding out like, you know, Nazi space technology, especially post-war, it's, it's like something that it kind of makes sense when you think about like what's most terrifying about, you know, Nazis, like besides the fact that they were like, you know, homicidal, incredibly dangerous. They were very smart, very uh, scientifically advanced. So, you know, and someone like I, I talked to came up with a really good point when they're basically saying that, you know, America at least from America's point of view, because that's where I can speak from. Everyone, 
all of all of America's wars are kind of based around like technological advancement and kind of like technological warfare, um, especially like you know past like the Civil War and pet and like twentieth century warfare. Um, so to have like an enemy that is as you know advanced as we are, if not more, is very you know it's very formidable. It makes for a very makes for a very you know tense villain and very tense storytelling, especially when you're doing like an alternate history scenario. So I was gonna, yeah. I was going to say even like say going back to the kind of rocket ship Galileo, I think forty seven did Heinlein right? It's somewhere around you know that the, the kind yeah. of late forties that there still must have been a, like a such a rawness. You know, even though it's a kind of juvenile book, we take it for granted now. It's a kind of you know, it's a, it's a juvenile book. But then, you know, <laughs> say forty seven. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago that the kind of there was that threat. You know, a very real threat. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like I read, it's the book was very hard to find, um, but I did find like a copy of it online, so I was able to read some of it when I was writing the article. And it's very, you know. It's kind of hard to take seriously, especially nowadays, because it's very, like, kind of basic in terms of its storytelling and very, like, it's it's a little hard to take the Nazis seriously in the context of the story because they're very, like, stereotyped and very just, like, we're evil mad scientists and we're going to take over the world. And very, it's it's very, like, kind of, like, old school pulpy cartoon kind of, kind of characters, but... Yeah, like, directly post-war. Um, I mean, people were still reeling from that kind of stuff, especially, like, like think about, you know, us dropping the bomb on Japan and all these other things that happened directly post-war. And, and, so, and especially, like, when going into the Cold War in the 1950s and that kind of paranoia. It, yeah, that stuff sounds like it could come back at any, any point, really. Do you think then, you know, talking about Philip K. Dick with his Man High Castle, you know, I'm not kind of exactly sure the, the dates there, but do you think there was still a rawness there? Because I would have thought kind of anxieties would have shifted more, like, say, Cold War times. Without, I wonder why possibly Dick picked the Nazis, you know what I mean? That kind of scenario. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still think that, like, even into the 1960s, like, if you're going strictly from a storytelling point of view, where you're going with, okay... If you go back into history, at least 20th century history, what's a villain that everyone kind of in a unified manner is terrified of? Everyone hates, everyone um, you know, recognizes as a real threat. It's the Nazis. They were, you know, they, they killed millions and millions of people and nobody bothered to stop them. They, you know, had developed all this technology that we, you know, ended up using post-war and... You know, they were way ahead of us in terms of that during the war. So it's it's still it still carries over, even if like, you know, maybe World War Two is starting to seem very kind of like in the past and very, you know, easy to not think about, I guess. Even then, like it's still kind of like everyone knows the Nazis are har- horrifying. We're horrifying villains. So they're, they're a very easy thing to cast as your, you know, big bad in a story. Um even if it was like the 1960s and America at the very least was, you know, going through more stuff, especially, you know, going into the mid 60s and, you know, the Vietnam War and all these other things that were kind of, you know, you know, taking up our cultural consciousness. 
I think it's exactly what you say. You're spot on, right? You know, with this kind of the technology, that kind of fear that, you know, like say from from our point of view as well, God, there were them V2 rockets that could reach us. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That was like the, 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 the even scarier. Do you know what I mean? The, these, yeah. the, these were kind of, this was like serious times for, for Great Britain. I tell oh, you yeah. what, I, I picked on a, a great bit though. You also mentioned that, you know, after the war, the kind of Nazis all fled to kind of South America, hiding. And that as well, you know, this kind of hiding to come back at another time. <laughs> you know, that was a great kind of point you made. Yeah, and it's very similar to, you know, finding them, not really similar to finding them on the moon, but it's a more extreme version of, you know, how they all went, in, not all of them, but when a lot of them went into hiding, um, and like the whole like Nazis fled to South America sounds kind of like a conspiracy theory, but you know if you dig if you dig like there are American documents that showed you know finding you know Heinrich Himmler in South America and you know who who was you know very a very big name in the SS um, and tons of others and the only one it was weird like trying to come up with like an exact number. Of, and trying to find like how many were found in South America because there were a lot of different uh, um, places citing sources and most people just cited the Daily Mail, um, which I don't really <laughs> trust fully <laughs> um, as a source. But the Daily Mail said around nine thousand, um, right? And that was the only that was the only real like number I could find. Um, so yeah, like. I got, there are a few comments, not, not on the article itself because Motherboard turns off their comments, but like, you know, on Twitter and stuff where people are like, you know, talking about how it sounds like more conspiracy theory than real. And yeah, obviously there are no Nazis on the moon. It's not real, which of course, you know, no, I say no, that. No, 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 yeah, no. Of course yes. I say this now, but <laughs> tomorrow we're going to find them on the moon. Um, basically, like it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but considering how many like big name like terrifying war criminals did escape Germany post-war. It's, you know, it, it, it goes along with it. It's just a more extreme version of it. I think as well, and you, you kind of sum this up great as well, where, you know, we've got this kind of, these Nazis on the moon. This is all in our kind of psyche now the, from the sky, but they look good. Yeah. 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 No, like, I, I don't know if it's, it's exactly because like, they're such an easy go-to villain and they're kind of become like, kind of, like ingrained in our cultural lexicon. So like, you know, you have things like, you know, Indiana Jones and, you know, the Nazis in that are, and they, and they wear like the Nazi uniforms and they have the red band and like, they all look the same and they're all like very clean pressed. And it's, and I mean, if you, and you look at like star Wars and with like, which also has really heavy, like world war two motifs and themes. And it's this idea that like, you know, the SS were like, they were so unified and so like in unison and clean and very, very like, I'm not gonna say fancy. Cause that sounds like a bad, a bad word to use, but you know, very, very like, like they look like they had a lot of money in terms of like the way their uniforms were designed. And, and I think like just over time, that's become a very like when you, in your head, when you like, it's like a good, like villain motif to have like this like unified group of, like like a hive mind essentially, like a unified hive mind group oh, behind, um, you know, a madman essentially, um, and 
So I, I think that like over time, that's just become like, this is what a villain looks like. This is what, you know what I mean? Like just kind of like in our heads, this is what a villain looks like. And so now like the Nazis just look like bad guys. Like that's just what they look like now. Like they, they look like Nazis. They look like bad guys. I wonder then, Carly, when it kind of changed, you know, in people's kind of psyche from the fear of them, you know, in kind of fiction and literature to kind of almost Mickey take mockery about the Nazis. Because I was, when we kind of did this, you know, my, when I read, read your article, straight away my reaction was, you know, the, the producer song, Springtime for Hitler. Yeah, you know yeah. I mean? And just like go stepping, dancing away. And I just watched it before, you know, we kind of came online there. And it's just like, it's so funny. Do you know what I mean? But they got like these kind of horrific, kind of evil, you know, people. Yeah. And then you've got Mel Brooks, you know what I mean? Kind of just like <laughs> dancing away there to a kind of lovely song about them. When do you think that kind of, do you think it was around about 67 when kind of the producers came out? When we kind of started thinking this is, they're a bit kind of, you know, <laughs> silly now. I mean, even if you read like Rocket Ship Galileo, the Nazis come off very silly. Um, so I'm not, I can like pinpoint exactly around the time when we started like seeing them as kind of like very, like, just like you said, like kind of clowns essentially. Like, I, although I think Mel Brooks definitely helps. <laughs> he, you know, he's, he's a Jewish guy. He has, you know, he has a, you know, he, he calls upon these things a lot in his comedy and he's very, you know, very good at just like sparing no one. And so I'm sure that was definitely a part of it as well. Um, and I think just in general, over time, it becomes like we become more desensitized and detached from like the real the real world horrors that they inflicted upon us. And, you know, I'm I was I was raised Jewish and. You know, when you're when you're raised Jewish in, you know, this kind of time, basically your entire education is, you know, you as a you, your people were oppressed throughout the years, especially during this one time during the Holocaust. And, you know, it's it's something that's very ingrained in us. Um, so but like for other people, I don't think it's really as. Like, it's not it's not like emphasize nearly as much. Um, so I think there's definitely a separation that I think comes, goes along with just like, you know, joke, like Nazi jokes, essentially like, or casting them as kind of clowns and, you know, seeing them in these kinds of like cartoonish situations, like, like not even just on the moon, but like, you know, you look at like dead snow, which is like, you know, Nazi zombies and it's ridiculous. Um, but I think, I think because we've had like those decades and decades of separation from the war and, you know, we've had things like Mel Brooks that have, you know, been like, it's okay to joke about like the Nazis and, you know, look how ridiculous they are. And so I think like all these things over time have just put them into a different light for at least a lot of like mainstream uh, like culture. And thinking about it now like especially in in terms of like internet culture and you know like you know the way people talk on the internet there's a lot of like like not nazi jokes like like what is the um like there's that internet law that's basically you know if you have a conversation on the internet long enough you'll eventually just bring up hitler (laughs) i've never heard that before (laughs) 
<laughs> just one last question then, Carly, now. And it's all to do with kind of, you know, do is there still kind of a viable kind of fodder there for Nazis on the on the moon, not, you know, using these kind of tropes of science fiction, you know, and putting and placing like the Nazis there? Or is, you know, I guess never say never. No, never, never say never. It's consider like I've been as someone who, you know, is very into pop culture and you know, reading and literature and movies and television, there's so much stuff being created right now. I highly doubt like we're done completely with that kind of trope. People are so like Iron Sky is one of those movies where you watch it and you do not take this seriously at all. It's not meant to be taken seriously, but it's something that you're watching. You're like, this is way better than it has any right to be. (laughs) (laughs) It is way more entertaining and way, way high quality. And so I think that like people like, you know, they see that and people are going to continue to make these kinds of things. And people love pulp. People love trash. Um, people love science fiction. Um, so I think it's going to keep going. And especially considering like the, the success of the man, in the high castle TV series. And like, I think it's very well done. Um, I think that, yeah, I don't think we're done. Not, not even a little bit. <laughs> Haven't even scraped the surface. Carly, it's lovely to have you on. Thank you so much for kind of, but even <laughs> coming you. up, coming up with this idea. Do you know what I mean? That was like, I see when I seen it there, I went, Oh, We've got to talk about this. You know what I mean? Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. There you go. Big thank you to Carly. What a, you know what I mean? Like, say, what a trope to kind of have. And it is. It's just, it's it's well used. And I think it'll be well used, you know, for, you know, many years to come. Do you know what I mean? Kind of. Highline was doing it back in 47 and we're still using it. You know what I mean? There's no chance of it dying out just yet. So, yeah, big thank you to Carly for, for writing that article, which is fantastic. I'll put a link onto it. So if you want to go over and read it as well, just brilliant. Thank you so much. What a show. Come on. I, I'll give myself a round of applause for this one. My, I, actually, Jeremy, sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? Checking all the video credit. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, Come back next week. Don't forget, if you, you know, fancy work for best fan cast in the Hugo Awards, we're kind of, we'll put our necks out. You know what I mean? If we get there, fantastic. If not, well, don't worry about it, but it, it will be nice. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me. Germany was having trouble. What a sad, sad story. Needed a new leader to restore its former glory. Where, oh, where was he? Where could that man be?
born in Dusseldorf, and that is why they call me Rolf. Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Nazi party. Thank you.